Cinema St. Louis's The Lens is now the takeup.com, a place to gather after the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and fear not, all your favorite episodes of The Lens featuring all your favorite guests are still here in your feed, just a little refocused. Stay subscribed to us here for future episodes, and you can follow along for new ones and more at the Takeup STL. Thank you for joining us on The Lens, a Cinema St. Louis podcast. I am Joshua Ray, programming critic, and I'm joined by Kayla McCullough, critic, programmer, social media manager. Hey, Kayla. Hi. And of course, Andrew Wyatt, critic, programmer, and managing editor of Cinema St. Louis's film site. Where we get our name from The Lens. Hey, Andrew. Hello. And while you can find all of our words at The Lens on cinemastlouis.org, every other week we take turns picking a film to focus on. And we are currently in Nancy Nora about filmmakers Myers and Efron. Today we've got a guest, Bree Maniscalco, the executive director of Cinema St. Louis, has picked Julie and Julia. And because it's all about food, food culture, Julia Child, we have another special guest, Shannon Weber, the digital editor of East Magazine, coming to talk all things food, all things Julie and Julia. And then finally, we'll have one more thing. I haven't even, I haven't ever watched the first one. What? How is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> Hocus Pocus by Contrary and Gen X, I guess the Hocus Pocus is not good. Hocus Pocus I think, probably yeah. isn't a good movie, but I watched it so many times as a little gay boy and just wanted to be Sarah Jessica Parker's character. I just, I, I don't remember watching it, but then like, as I became like aware of like what it was and everybody like talking about it, I was like, I will never watch this movie because it's so like cringe, like people being. I'm, I'm actually surprised that more people have not canceled it retroactively because the, the plot is really weird to revisit in 2022. Like oh, so it's about, before... it's about like tweens losing their virginity. It's very strange. Yeah, it is really weird. It is hypersexual. And before I watched Hocus Pocus 2, I was like, there's no way that there's, this is totally going to be sexless. Mm -hmm. I was mostly right. Like there's a joke about a little kid learning what a virgin is. And then something, a spell working because someone's a virgin. But that is it. Yeah, like Mo Monster Squad did it first. Sorry. <laughs> a wild time it, it's like, it's not great what's great about it is that Miller's commitment to doing this again like she is going hog at this thing and um Kathy and Jimmy's having fun Sarah Jessica Parker's kind of lost in it and I think that gets to the first point is like that was the horny dumb blonde like that was her thing is that she was so Decked up that that's all she had in her mind. It was just like evil with horniness. And here now it's all she gets to do is be dumb. And so it's kind of not very fun for her. There are some good jokes. It's so, you know, corporate Disney fi that it's kind of eventually evaporates into nothing. I, I watched it a week ago. I don't, I don't really remember a whole lot about it. Oh, um, they go into a Walgreens and they're 
convinced by the the young women who are the lead characters that all the youth and beauty products are filled and made of um, souls of the young. This is cute shit. Like, it's good comedy. Laugh several times throughout this film. It should tell one thing that hardly anything. They try to make like an emotional bond between these three sisters. And the whole idea is that they're very not human. They're fucking witches, but they try to take them to a different direction. And so it sort of plays on your nostalgia for the thing in a really stupid way. But instead of a broom, Kathy and the Jimmy's witch uses two rumbas, and that is funny. Do you think I need like to... one under each foot? <laughs> yes, one under each foot. What is that, Kayla? Do you think I need to rewatch the first one and the like in preparation to watch the second one and yeah. like watch it this Halloween season, or do you Absolutely. think I should just skip it and oh, do something else? If you have any intention of of watching the second one, definitely familiarize yourself with the first one because it's so dependent on it. Like it's just one of the nostalgia reboot things that is made for that purpose. Mm-hmm. There's some enjoyment in it because there's that member, Kevin Jimmy and um, Sergis Parker, Tony Hale, is that it? Sam Richardson's kind of a beat reunion. Um, other than that, forgettable. If you are not drawn to watching it, skip it. You're good. You're good. I just feel like I need to watch Hocus Pocus because I feel like I'm like lacking something like socially because I've never seen it. It's like not seeing Shrek, no matter how bad it yeah. is. I feel like you have to watch it. I guess. Like I you know, I'm so sick of like cinema shame. I don't want to feel like I should have to watch Hocus Pocus or any Marvel movie ever. Or... Yeah, I yeah, I that's like a non-negotiable for me. Like I will never apologize for not liking Marvel, but Hocus Pocus <laughs> is like a little bit different because that is very it's a kind of like le- yeah. I was gonna say like it's 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 in my brand. Yeah, yeah. You need to fill out your brand. What if you become like a Hocus Pocus person though? I'm not going to be able to handle like it. Like, yeah. at, at this age, like, that would be a little bit concerning. I hope you would check on me and make sure that I'm okay. doing well. <laughs> that is a very specific Disney adult, though. It's the Disney adult who's just a pet with a standard. Only slightly more insufferable than the Nightmare Before Christmas adult. <laughs> and I say that as somebody who loves Nightmare Before Christmas. But, like, but if you're you're not, another film I have never seen. Oh, you definitely see something. But it's that's not in your brain. But I it's a genuinely know. good but it's a genuinely good movie. It's a good movie. Like if you can it's it's in the pantheon of good to great movies that you have to divorce from extra cultural context. Divorce it from a top topic merchandise and just appreciate it for what it is. Come on. I know you bought a, a Sally bones or whatever her name is t-shirt from uh, topic Andrew. i did i did not i am proud to say and I, and i have loved i have loved nightmare for christmas since it came out in white release but i have never i don't think i've ever bought any i don't think i've ever bought any i i did and i i've never seen the film and i did i bought a jack skeleton you're a poser like, you're yeah. a nightmare for christmas poser i did because like i wanted to look cool 
So I did you feel I you there. look cool with mission? No, because like no one knew. Like it, like you know that's when like Instagram was like just coming up, and like there were I don't think there was any stories, so I couldn't. I think I just probably did like a you know a picture of it with the Nashville <laughs> filter or something. <laughs> oh my god, the Nashville filter! You really just took me back. Yeah. No, definitely see Nightmare Before Christmas. I would do that and not focus. Oh, that's your brand. All right. Kayla, what's your assignment? Andrew, was there anything better? Didn't you watch Do Revenge, which is also in Kayla's wheelhouse? And she has not seen it yet? Yeah. I, I saw I saw a couple of Netflix movies this week. Um, new new films that were just released, I believe, last weekend. Um, the first was Do Revenge which again does feel like a Kayla film. Uh, I was kind of interested in it just because I like Maya Hawk and the whole sort of vibe I was getting from it looked kind of interesting. I don't think it's an entirely successful film. So the premise of the film, the, the elevator pitch is it's basically strangers on a train done in a non-murderous way as like a high school girl's revenge movie where two girls who like nobody knows that they know each other. Maya Hawk plays sort of the new girl at school who's arriving in senior year and uh Camilla Mendez from Riverdale is playing like the queen bee who was taken down the previous year and so they they criss strangers on a train they crisscross their revenge plots and like go after each other's enemies but there's no murder uh, no there's not really a murder it's not it's not that kind of film it's it's a p oh. it's very pg-13 in its like action I guess I think it's a it might be an R-rated film but a pg-13 in its action I I don't think it's an entirely successful film. It ends up being okay. There are two wolves inside this movie that are competing for each other. One, the production design is absolutely crazy, and I love it. It's like this freaky past, like pastel overload fruit and cream lifesaver palette. Um, it's like a just weird enough to feel like an alternate reality. And the part like of the Highland Heather's. Yeah, like Heather's, but and and so there's a so there's a part of this film that wants to be Heather's desperately, that desperately wants to be 2022 Heather's, and that's the part of the film works when it's going like just full camp, vicious girls like attacking each other and doing horrible stuff and saying the bitchiest, poison, most poisonous stuff imaginable. I feel like it works. There's another film inside this movie that also works which is actually a pretty like sincere deconstruction of the idea of revenge. It's basically a dig to graves revenge parable about like maybe structuring your whole <laughs> life, your whole, your whole routine around hurting other people is bad for the soul maybe. And we shouldn't be doing this. And maybe it's better to like, let some things go. And it actually ends up being like a really, serious sincere treatment of those ideas and also like kind of the idea of that we are often we, we are all somebody the thesis of the film if i could present it is that we are all somebody else's worst person in the world we sometimes oh. we don't even and sometimes we don't even know right that we are somebody's worst person in the world so that's the problem i think with the film is that those two things the sort of crazy over-the-top gorgon battle movie that it wants to be over here and the the legitimately sincere deconstruction of revenge in a high school like social context those things don't work together so when it tries to put those two halves together it just ends up being kind of 
okay. Like there's two good movies that have been turned into one okay movie. I do recommend it just because there's some cool stuff going on. If you like either of those two modes, I think it will still be satisfying, but it does feel like a compromise film in some way. I've been resisting it, but I don't know why. I guess I had in my head that it was just like a, a another episode of Riverdale. No, which, it's its, it's a thing. Which would also be kind of fun. I think you'll like it because of the overtop production design and sort of thinking uh, side of it, coupled with just the novelty of like, okay, let's- Did you just call me a homosexual? No. I'm, and I had somebody who likes bitchy dialogue as well. No, but I think, and I think you'll like the idea of like sort of doing, in the same way that sort of Clueless was doing Jane Austen through the yeah. lens of high school social socialization, this is kind of doing Hitchcock through the lens of high school, high school socialization. So I think that's interesting for a film buff regardless. Yeah. So I pulled up the IMDb, not to take us too far off topic with it. Mm-hmm. And the first image of Maya Hawk. Let me tell you how dumb I am. One, knew she was Ethan Hawke's daughter because she's in the last movie stars, the, the docuseries from HBO about Paul Newman <laughs> and Joanne Woodward on Kayla's Brightwall Dark Room piece on the films Paul directed Joanne in and watched the last movie stars. Then look at a picture of Maya Hawke and realize that she is Uma Thurman's daughter. Oh, you this- didn't know that. I had no idea. And I looked at it. I was like, oh, I didn't know Uba was in this. Oh, but yeah. you know who is in it? Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh. As the, she plays the headmistress at their swanky pastel colored private school. So, Oh, my God. Sarah Michelle Gellar was my, my beard, but not really a beard. <laughs> Do you all know what that term means? Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. Checking on the streets. The woman you claim to crush on, the pop figure culture you claim to crush on. But I kind of did really have a crush on her (laughs) and Christina Ricci. And we all did. I think we all had a crush on Christina Ricci. Yeah, I think it was more aspirational than devotional. (laughs) What was the other Netflix movie you saw? Uh, So the other film is a French film from Romain Gavra. Yeah, he made The World Is Yours, is the only other film Mm -hmm. I've seen before. But this is a film that had, I guess, had been, it's been at some festivals this year. And it's made some buzz, and Netflix picked it up and premiered it. I was really impressed with it. I loved it. It's it's short. It's only about a 90-minute film. So this, it has a premise that, Josh, I think you saw with me a few years ago, a film called Les Miserables from the French filmmaker Lage Lie. Yes. Um, unsuccessful film, I think we both yeah. felt. Yeah. So it has this premise that's somewhat similar to that. It takes place in a French sort of public house council housing project where a riot has, or really not even a riot, really like an uprising, an anti-police uprising has, has started. This film kind of starts more in media rest as the, as the uprising has already begun. I feel like it's just a, it's, I jokingly said, it's like Les Miserables, but good. (laughs) But part of it is just that the filmmaker knows that he's making a movie. So instead of sort of getting bogged down in, the cross-cutting law and order melodrama of the situation, he makes he uses it as an occasion to just sort of frame it as this operatic, crazy tragedy where like it's a lot of long takes. The opening like ten minutes of the movie are one sort of propulsive, jaw-dropping long take that starts with a guy throwing a Molotov cocktail at a police station and just follows what happened the aftermath of that for like the next ten minutes. 
lots of great long takes. He uses literal Greek opera music as the soundtrack for the film. It's all sort of, it's heavy handed, but in a way that I think serves that the cinematic language definitely like dovetails with that really nicely in a way that Les Miserables, again, I felt like I was watching a very serious movie about being in France today. Mm-hmm. And this, this, I feel like it is a very serious movie about being in France today, but you don't even remember that because you're just sort of swept away by the filmmaking of it, which is really exceptional. And again, like, like a Greek tragedy, it kind of goes to some implausible places narratively, but it, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's 90 minutes of breathless, just propulsive action, moral, like just a moral gray morass of people switching sides. Shakespeare would have loved this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it feel it feels like like a lesser Shakespeare play, like that lost that was lost, and somebody's now reimagining as like taking place at a French council estate. So, are you aware of uh, Romain Gavras? Do you, do you know anything about him? No, like I said, this is the only second film of his I've seen. You've actually seen a lot of his work. Oh, okay. If, if you would indulge me, he is a music video director. Oh, that's right, right. Isn't MAA he, um... Bad Girls, where they're side riding the cars in the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie XS's uh, XX, gosh. Um, no Church in the Wild, Jay Z, Kanye. MIA, too, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I did Born Free, MIA, and Justice's Dress. So he's like becoming a Mark Romanek, Jonathan Glazer. I won't say that he's, you know, strong as Jonathan Glazer. I think probably the best of people, music video directors. Spike too. Jones too, right? Spike Jones, you have adventure ones too. Express yourself, Madonna. He is also the son of Costa Gavras, the director of Missing, Z, a few other films. Dude known for making political thrillers. Yeah, European like, political. Look products. at you, man, with the biographical details. I didn't even I know. So, I'm just watching the film. He's a Nepo baby. He's a Nepo yeah. baby. Yeah. He's a Nepo baby who got involved in the music scene. He's like, Dad, I want to become a DJ. And his <laughs> version of DJ is making music videos. And then Netflix gave him money. Well, and then take, Andrew take that him. as a recommendation then, that like me not knowing anything about <laughs> his history, like that that he came to this through a fa- through a famous family that the film really impressed me like i said i kept thinking of this is the movie i wish the miserable had been like a, a real movie movie that like doesn't lose sight of how ridiculous it is and just really impressive sound really impressive uh, vis- some like crazy phantasmagorical visuals uh using almost entirely natural lighting like so that the, the day night cycle the way that the sun goes down and then the whole project gets sort of swamped in this haze and then it comes back up again the clouds of tear gas and everything it just it works really well yeah he's an incredible visualist his his first film the world is yours that you had mentioned mm-hmm. is like kind of though so but has all of that in it too um it just feels really minor in its execution and in the plot this, this, but it does have isabella ajani and vincent cuffsell so that's worth saying that's on netflix too this, this, I think, is definitely a step up to another level of filmmaking. I didn't personally, I'm not a French, I don't know, have an encyclopedic knowledge of French actors. I didn't recognize anybody in the cast, which I think is the, the, the benefit as a viewer, is that you kind of have to believe that all these people who are who they are. Um, so again, I like it. Um, so both Do Revenge and Athena are on Netflix right now. 
Very cool. Well, let's go a little bit further in the past and another past and talk about Julie and Juliet's the third film in our Nancy Norris series. And we have a special guest. It is the pick of Brie Maniscalco, the executive director of Cinema St. Louis. I could write a blog. I have thoughts. Write a blog about Sissy. I'm not a real cook like Julia Child. Julia Child wasn't always Julia Child. Why don't I go to cooking school? Bonjour! The Julie slash Julia Project. I cook my way through Julia Child's cookbook. 365 days, 524 recipes. I am risking my well-being for a deranged assignment. Nancy. Is it crazy? This is our yes. third in this series, Nancy, Nora. And this is our second and final Nora Ephron, which also happens to be her final film. I have thoughts about it being her final film, too. I'm sure Caleb is huge Nora academic. You sure do, too. But we have a guest. Her name is Brie Maniscalco. She is the executive director of what I like to call on the podcast, The Mothership of Cinema St. Louis. Hi, Brie. Hello. You know, I, I asked you if you had an affinity for any Nora Ephron films, and then you named half of her films. So your answer was yes. But it's funny because when you first asked that, I thought, no, ew, I don't. And then I realized, oh, wow, I actually do. Yeah. So that's something we've talked about is Nora Ephron not really being regarded as like not being in auteur status. But when you look at her body of work and include her writing, you see an auteur, really, than a, a, a person who has preoccupations, has a shared aesthetic across the body. But why did you end up picking Julie and Julia other than trying to make me hungry? Well, yes, this, this movie definitely makes you hungry. For me, I think the, the reason this film stands out to me the most, I mean, I love so many of her films, which I realized once I put pen to paper, but it's one of those where you can connect with it in different times of your life. So when it first came out, it was at a time when I had just moved to St. Louis and was looking for my way to fit in and what that way would be. So I kind of felt like the Julie in it. And now that I'm older you know, I'm I'm in a new phase of my career and trying to look for another new way to fit in. So it's it's kind of it was very interesting rewatching it from that perspective versus the me from back then that was in the 500 square foot apartment that felt very much like Julie's home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it's 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 and of course the the acting. You know, I, I I have some comments about Amy Adams in this, but. The acting for Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci, Jamie Lynch. I mean, the cast is the cast is great. You just hit like all of my main points about this. <laughs> Kayla, what about you? What's your relationship with this one? You've written about this one, a sort of short capsule in a Nora Ephron compendium on the lens. Yes. Yeah, so this is not my favorite Nora film, but I don't think anybody else could have made it except for Nora. So I will say, like, 
again, it's not like the first one I would choose to watch, like if I were rewatching, but I still believe, you know, it holds merit for what it is. Where, because you're a Nora head or an Ephronite. Yeah, I like the second mm. one better. <laughs> you like that one either. Where is it right for you? Mm, I guess, like, in terms of, like, contemporary Nora, it's, like, a lot, like, higher. Like, maybe, okay, so I've always said, like, When Harry Met Sally is, like, my all-time favorite. Second would be You've Got Mail, then Sleepless in Seattle, and then probably somewhere in between there. So I would say maybe, like, it's for middle. sure and like, yeah, in the middle. After this rewatch, it's my number two. I might like it more than When Harry Met Sally. Oh, that's Harry. What? I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, they just get kicked out. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> Andrew, seems like you disagree. <laughs> What's your relationship <laughs> with both Julie and Julia? I, I had never seen it before, actually. Even though I'm oh, a huge gosh. Amy Adams fan, I had, it's one of her films I had never seen before. So this was my first experience with, experience with it. I watched it about a week ago, first time. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't feel like it's necessarily above Nora's more like classical rom coms, as we've as we mentioned before. Sort of the holy trinity of Harry Met Sally, You've Got Mail, and Sleepless in Seattle. But I do think that it's doing a lot of interesting things, particularly structurally. And uh, and particularly the like the way that it talks about food and conflates food interestingly. And Nora, we t you mentioned Nora as a writer. The way that Nora sort of dovetails the way we think about food philosophically, and particular the transmission of food information through cookbooks. Um, the same way that writers generally talk about the transmission of ideas through the written word and this kind of connection over time and space. Um, it feels like it feels like a movie made by a writer specifically, not just somebody uh -huh. who loves who loves food and loves uh, Julia Child, but specifically made by somebody who is keyed into the power of writing. Yeah, I mean, uh, a, a writer, yeah. a writer is going to write the lines. I'm becoming a writer. No, you are a writer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I've seen this movie three times. I saw it when it came out, and so I guess it should kind of lay out what it is if anyone hasn't seen it. Typically popular film. Uh, Meryl Streep got an Oscar nomination for it. I think it even a bit better than just one nom for Meryl mugging as Julia. But yes, we'll get into it. But I mean, I think I pretty much agree with what the consensus was at the time, is that the, the Julia Child stuff was stronger than the Julie Powell stuff, that the Julie Powell section, like Amy Adams is kind of annoying. Very fast though. Okay, 13 years later, I'm the Amy Adams character. <laughs> I was watching this and the entire thing clicked for me about, and I think the key was, I had forgotten that this is like, a post 9-11 film and a post World War II film. So it takes it, it's, you know, personal, it's political and finds these two women who find themselves without place, without function 
and situates them at a time of reconstruction. And how do you reconstruct? How do you become the thing you want to be? How do you figure out what that is? I think it's actually really prescient about the work that pretty much all of us do in, in being in the arts and, and wanting to achieve something and, and not knowing how to do it, but then getting a bright idea and then doing it, you know? But then the fight along the way, the inter, like this, the psychological fight of facing your own demons. A lot of people, like I have, not to ramble on, I Rotten Tomatoes below. And that is the general consensus. It's that it's, it's light, it's affectionate, also insufferable, that it's without, it's only pleasurable. I, I just don't, I think it's so smart about these two women and the uh, study and contrast that it is between them. So, uh, but okay, the plot. Julie Powell is a downer luck writer. She's written half a novel, is not published. She is working a government job processing insurance claims or like helping with insurance claims from the Twin Towers. She wants to be a writer <laughs> and she's married to a, a great husband, number two in the world husband, because uh, number one in the world husband is married to Julie Child. <laughs> uh, but they, they move and, you know, she decides I'm going to start a blog in 2002, a blog and go through every one of the recipes in mastering the art of French cooking. The other half of the film and they're on dual tracks is, uh, Julia Child and her struggle to write mastering the art of French cooking. There's a lot packed in. There's a lot of details in that. So, Bree, you said you have thoughts on Amy Adams. Let's I go. do. So, I love Amy Adams. Love, love, love her. Adore her in almost everything she does. And so, when when this first came out and they revealed who was going to play Julia Child, I'm also a huge Julia Child fan. Watch the show, you know, reruns on PBS when I was a kid, when I was a teenager in college. I always dreamt that I could someday cook like her. I still can't. So there's that. But I think that this, you know, kind of goes to that, what I said earlier, where depending on where you are in your life, you see these different positions within the film. But I also think that Efron does a great job with showing you two sides of who we all can be. We mm. can be this classy, matured kind of person that can let the the tough stuff hit you and you feel it, but you let it roll off your shoulders. And then you can be the person that is narcissistic, only thinking about herself, annoys you when she's giggling about eating an egg for the first time. I mean, really? And then, you know, has a meltdown on the kitchen floor when she's kick and she's kicking her leg like she's a, a five-year-old throwing a tantrum in the grocery store that doesn't get a treat. And, and yes, this comes from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> but but so I think like we all have had that happen, you know, whether we were in our 20s and throwing those tantrums or we're in our 40s and throwing <laughs> those tantrums. It's it's something that I think she 
Efron does a great job um, casting the the actresses and the actors in this film. And I think as annoying and frustrating and just infuriating <laughs> as Julie Powell is in this film, I think Amy Adams nailed it. I also think that it's it was quite a shift for her at the time with the work she had done. Mm -hmm. um, just to give a little sidebar, when I was re-watching this, my five and a half year old was like, Mommy, is, is that Giselle from Enchanted? <laughs> because she doesn't look at all like Giselle. And it's true. Like, you know, you have the, the you know, the 1950s France and you feel like you're teleported in time and, and space to be, you almost feel like you were there. And then with Julie Powell, you're like, oh, I don't want to be there. It's, be it's, it's, it's forced. It's like contrived. It's all centered around her. And it's these awkward dinner parties that she throws for herself. Whereas, you know, on the opposite end, when Meryl Streep's character, Julia Child, throws a similar dinner party, it's beautiful and classy and elegant and emotional in all the right ways. So it's it's interesting, I think, you know, when I was reading what people think about this film, there are those people that really hate Amy Adams in it and really love Meryl Streep in it. But I think that's why Efron did a great job. Um, that's the purpose, it. right? Yeah, yeah, you it, feel it. This is not a biopic of either person. Okay, but let me be let me be the contrarian here and say that I actually liked Julie's segments. You I don't know. It. I don't know. I don't know her. I never read her blog. I never read her book. So I have no idea if this is rep is this representative of an actual person or is this performance plus screenwriting? I don't know. But I do feel like it's a well-drawn character. Like it feels like I am watching somebody who has anxiety issues, who has self-loathing issues, who is inherently a people pleaser and is using food and sort of the comfort for her that comes from cooking. We get a, a taste of that background where she talks about how important this cookbook and cooking in general was to her early life to her childhood so we get a taste for like why cooking like there's another stupider version of the screenplay where we just sort of said i'll be a cook and that's it like that's the beginning it's just something that pops into her head but we get the, a little bit of that character work that shows us why cooking and how you can see in the work that the screenplay and that adams is doing why cooking centers julia julie and why it maybe helps soothe some of her anxiety about who she is, about her sort of quarter-life crisis, plus not necessarily knowing where she is in the world, but plus her feeling of inadequacy versus her peers. And we get that very heavy-handed scene early on where, like, all her peers are sort of successful and her concerns are sort of like 10,000 feet beneath their concerns. Yeah, but um, Casey Wilson. <laughs> but I do think it, like, to me, I don't, I don't, and again, this is just me coming at it for 2022, first-time viewer. I didn't find it particularly like unsympathetic or grating or anything. It's it's just like she's in a different place. And where a 30-year-old isn't, it's also like some rec, some cultural recognition, right? That where a 30-year-old is in 2022 is a very different place. In America, is a very different place culturally than sort of a globetrotting woman in her 40s who is trying to break into a professional, male-dominated professional world. And I mean, it's obvious that Julia is more like, poised and confident as a person than Julia is. Some of that is just who she is. Some of that is the 10 plus or 15 plus years she has on Julie. But it's like the contrast is deliberate that Julia 
knows who she is and who she wants to be, or she's it's 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 quickly congealing in this film th that she is destined to be a cook and a world-renowned cook and a communicator of cooking. That's the that's the, that's the big thing. But Julie well, hasn't figured that out. Who's to figure out who the hell she is yet? There's also I, something very time capsule-y about like starting a blog in in early early two thousand salon. Yeah, like this movie has become a period piece, right? Yeah. <laughs> I I also think like as annoyed as I was with Julie's character. It's so well crafted that, you know, at the end, when she has reached this accomplishment and she goes to the museum and she puts the butter there as the tribute to Julia Child, like it is touching. It is very, very touching. And you you feel happy for the person that you almost felt like was a villain when they have, a, you know, when she has the fight with her husband. It's done really, really well. Part of the tension is that she's too reverent. For Julia Child, I know she's doing mm -hmm. this project, but throughout, she says she's perfect. Julia doesn't hate anything. Uh, Julia could never do any wrong. And one of the key things about this film is the scene where she gets the call from the reporter that says, what do you think about Julia Child saying this about your blog? It, uh, no one else would put that in this movie. No one else would do it. It would be a pure, like, inspirational thing. It turns out maybe, you know, she she wasn't as harsh and maybe never even got near it. Maybe it was her editor that said, I think it was something like, Julia doesn't suffer fools easily or something like that, which is pretty tough stuff. But that, really, the real journey is that Julie is able to put Julia in a space where she is the art, right? She's no longer the art and the artist combined. She's able to put her in a space where she can respect it and doesn't need to become her. That to me is such a, a, a personal growth. And that's something, you know, critics struggle with all the time is, you know, trying to reckon with the person and then the, the person's work. But that, Scene is also just the most incredible thing because it's the reconstruction in the Smithsonian of Julia Child's kitchen, and then light comes in through the window. I'm getting chills. Uh, light comes in through the window, and then Paul and Julia come in, and Julia has her copy of Mastering the Art, and it's it's just great. Hey, let me tell you, I cried at that that last line, and then it became a movie. I'm like, that is. Yes, of course that was made to make me cry and it worked <laughs> and I'm so bad at it. Well, kind of to to go off what we were talking about earlier with Julie, I know that so Nora was approached by um Amy Pascal from Sony to mm. to make a film about Julie and she didn't think that there was enough there to warrant a film all about Julie. So she, you know, wanted to do something with Julia. So I feel like, like in my mind, like I agree with Nora in that way, but also too, I think the film has a lot of, like it's talking, there's a lot of subtext about Hollywood too, God. I feel like, so. Ooh, clean the lever on that. Please. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, so, I feel like it's, you know, the film is also about, like, making your own path instead of, like, f 
following someone else's, which to me, that's kind of like, I think Nora was commenting on like where Hollywood was headed, like, you know, with remakes and with sequels and things like that. So when I rewatched it, that's kind of like what I took away from it, where at, when I first watched it, like, I, you know, it was more about the mise-en-scene and things like that, where like, when I watched it, when I rewatched it, that's what I kind of took away. It does feel really autobiographical in that. And you can see like how Brie was saying, it's about like two different stages. And I think the the reason that both characters are so sharp, sharply written, is Nora Ephron is in that. Because uh, we know she was a, a great food journalist. Even that word itself might come from her work. And that she was also just kind of a young upstart uh, who was just trying to make it in the world. You know, the first thing we talked about with Nora was Heartburn, which is based on her book about her divorce from Carl Bernstein. And that movie's not successful as like autobiography, I think. And we talked about how compromised it is. This feels more autobiographical than anything else that she's done. And that it is her last film and she's able to reckon with food, filmmaking, um, making it as a woman, it, gender parity, gender dynamics, poly there's, she really does, what is the line? Stuff this chicken till it can't breathe anymore, something like that. Uh, there's a lot going on in it, but it doesn't feel like an overstuffed bird at all. I think that it feels that she, the choices that she makes and what she chooses to highlight are just really smart in the compare and contrast. And often the kind of match cutting that she does or match dialogue. I love it when Amy Adams says, Julia hates me, but Julia can't hate anything. Cut to oh, I hate that woman, blah, 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 from Julia. And then that scene ends on Julia saying, I love. So it's really getting into trying to build these people as people. But yeah, it, it, it just definitely feels like the perfect final film as a compendium of everything mm -hmm. that she was preoccupied with, both personally and artistically. All right, Meryl. <laughs> Too much? Anybody? I, you know, I, again, I, I have said previously that I, I love Julia Child. So when I first heard that Meryl Streep was cast for this role, I thought, oh, I don't, I don't know if she can do it. And I think if, if I'm remembering correctly, before this film, didn't Streep and Adams do Doubt? Was yep. it Doubt? Yeah, that was after this, though, wasn't it? I thought. Nope. Wow. It was a year before. Wow. So, so coming off of that into this was interesting to see. But I thought that Street did a great job with it. You know, Julia Child was known to be this kind of overbearing, loud, towering figure that didn't really care that she was different or acted different or felt different from other people. You know, she was who she was and she 
and she was lovely for it. And, you know, I, I'm kind of of, of the, <laughs> the mindset now where anytime Streep is in a film, I get annoyed because I know that she's so talented. She's going to get an Oscar nomination versus some underdog that's trying to, you know, get there first. But I thought she did a great job. I thought she nailed the mannerisms, the way that Julia spoke. I thought they, yeah, I loved her. I think with Julia, it's such, she has such a distinctive voice and persona and habits and affect that I'm not sure how you do it and not have it. Like you have to at least start from a place of mimicry because if you're not doing Julia Child, people are going to go, that's not her. But I do think the film works and I'm not a huge fan of what Streep has been doing like in the last 10 or 20 years with her career. But in, in terms of, I feel like she is often going into like mimicry over performance and inhabiting a character. But I do think it works in this film. And the cool touch that Efron adds is including the SNL sketch, right? Yes. Because, right. because yes. that that almost inoculates Streep's. Because we first, it took me about 10 minutes to sort of ease into what Streep is doing here, that she, she's doing mimicry. You can't not do mimicry because Julia is such a distinctive voice, such a distinctive presence. But once you sort of ease into it a little bit, you start to really believe that, yes, this is how this woman acts and behaves and talks normally in her daily life. Um, she only puts it on like maybe a 10% extra for the cameras when she's doing her TV show. Mm -hmm. But including that Dan Aykroyd sketch is the inoculation, right? He, she's right. showing us what stupid parody mimicry looks like. To and that she's so that. ingrained in the culture as that character, as her mannerisms, as her voice. Mm -hmm. Right. But for the, it's almost, I feel like it's also almost there for the people who are like, I don't know if Meryl Streep is really doing Julia Child. It just feels like an over-the-top impression. She goes, this is what an over-the-top impression looks like by sliding that SNL sketch in there briefly, which which I think is is a genius little touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked it. I, I feel like it, again, it maybe took me more like 10 minutes to get past of this is Meryl Streep doing Julia Child. But particularly once she gets some like a more, uh, some more um, scenes that give her some more emotional range to play off of. I really like... I buy that this is this woman and this is who she, how, just how she is. This is her, her voice, her mannerisms. There's some Meryl twitchiness that comes in, kind of fidgety behaviors that I, I don't see in footage of Julia Child. And I say that not as a like Julia Child scholar, but uh, we showed Julia, the documentary that came out yes. last year about Julia Child at Slip last year. Yes. Which is very, I mean, this is definitely not a biopic of Julia Child. This is about her writing this book. Um, because there are a lot to talk about when you talk about Julia Child. Yes. But Julia Child was, like, I think Meryl needed a little bit of Miranda Priestly. Yeah, I was literally about to say that. <laughs> like, Miranda has this sort of stoic grace. And where Julia Child is boisterous and big. She also moved with purpose and and and, and really understood that she had to understand the the bigness of her body. Can I say the bigness of her body? Y'all know what I mean. <laughs> so what you're saying is that Meryl's a little too flipperty gibbet in this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as is usually the thing. But still, it she's doing something really special and she's getting close enough to impersonation but not the snl sketch like you said andrew mm -hmm. uh that it, uh, yeah 
It's and good the, stuff. I and, don't know. And Efron gives us those scenes, right? Like that gives us some emotional beats that we, so it isn't just constant, the persona we've seen on TV. She gives us like when her sister gets engaged and there's no, ex it's a nice touch because there's no exposition. We just see she's happy, but it immediately sets her into tears and her husband is there. And we, we know why we can infer it. We don't need to have it like, we don't need to have exposition explaining why her sister getting married and having children is going to, is bothered. Mm -hmm. Um, it just, it's there and it, seeing Julia Child sobbing with mingled joy and grief, like is a, is not something we're used to seeing. And that, that helps a lot, I think, to make the character work, work as a character again, and not as a character. That is a, a beautiful note that she strikes when she's trying so hard to say that she's happy and just can't control it. And it just within a few seconds speaks about a lifetime of this relationship that they have. And something that goes unspoken in that film, explicitly at least. What about this over the uh, overhead shot at the wedding where Julia's mm -hmm. Julia sister's getting married to her short king. And we got to talk about Stanley Tucci too. And they're, they're, the two couples are dancing and they just, the sisters just reach out and touch each other in a moment of acknowledgement. It's like, I'm so happy you're happy and I'm so happy you're also happy. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so funny. It's something where like, you know, when I watched it, I think when it first came out, I was focused more on the, the cooking aspect and the parallel lives not so much the relationships that they had that made them who they were or made them strive to be something as, as in the case with Julie, you know, she had those awful friends that she was trying to compare herself to, but also one up. And it felt with Julia, it was just so beautiful. The relationships that she was forging with new women in, in France but then also to see that touching moment with her sister, it's it really stuck with me a lot more this time than when I saw it the first time. It's it and is only half a second. It is, and you know what's fault? You know they they embrace their arms, and then the two husbands shake hands, and that moment says so much about those relationships. Mm -hmm. It's really sweet. Stanley Tucci, are you listening? Do you want to be my husband, but only as Paul Child? Please, <laughs> can I hire him? To the rules. I was saying to somebody the other day, the rules. This Paul Child establishes the rules of a good husband, which is you support her unconditionally, you you eat her food with enthusiasm, and you don't name names before the House on American Activities <laughs> Committee. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the flip side, you have Eric, who uh, doesn't he get upset at her one time for always referring to him as um, what is it the saint in in the oh. blogs? So she's she's kind of trying to paint him like he is Paul Child, but he he's not. He doesn't want to be. Which mimics uh, the way she talks about Julia, right? That she treats she calls yeah. Julia perfect. So that's why I think that's why I said that I feel like Julie had in this movie at least Julie has a self loathing issue because she idealizes everybody else around her, not herself. Her mm -hmm. husband is perfect. Julia is perfect. Um, the 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 women that she admires is perfect. She can't live up to them. 
at least she feels she can't live up to them because they're they're like filling this hole for her in this really weird parasocial relationship that she has with them, right? Mm-hmm. Her her friends though, can I just go back to give Casey Wilson more small supporting parts? I don't want I don't want her to star in anything. <laughs> but her and Vanessa Ferlito opening their flip phones. Okay, great. Also, Gone Girl, where is your wife, Nick? <laughs> it's embedded in my head forever. So justice for Casey Wilson. I want to add, maybe you guys remember, I don't really remember like the cultural context. Was this the beginning of the Tucci songs in the sense that was this the first film role where he was sort of held up as this like comforting, sexy, masculine paradigm. And that sort of dovetailed into his later, his later roles and his later public persona. Do you know what the first one was? Which one? Devil Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Also okay. with Streep. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. I, I can see why I'm sure Meryl was like, get, get Stanley in here because <laughs> we're so good together. And the chemistry between them, like you, you to like you really see them as this loving, passionate couple. Whereas you know Julie and Eric, it just feels like they're roommates. <laughs> <laughs> really does. <laughs> so can we get into hot gossip for a second? Do y'all know what happened really with Eric and Julie Powell? No, are they still together or no? Or did they divorce? Absolutely. As it turns out, they were both fooling around while she was blogging. And then Julie's second book, after Julie and Julia, is about her going through what's the the joy of cooking? Is that the other book mm-hmm. in this? Right. Yes. Her going through the recipe of the joy of cooking and their affairs. Like she talks so, frankly about them? Yeah. So it's pretty what? much like her, like her heartburn. It's her heartburn. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. That's meta. Kayla, stop blowing my mind like that. Okay. I had, I did have to go back to see the Tuchit son. I get is what we're calling it. And it really is. Yeah. Double wears products when he comes back and he makes some crap. And then Julian, Julia, lovely bones. But you know what, what helps him become daddy status is literally being the daddy in easy a oh yeah yeah i forgot about that yeah um other couple goals patricia clarkson and stanley tucci yeah easy a but i feel like paul child is like the guy like he would that was the moment when he became the, the guy that every woman wanted to marry and like because he's like like julia's the dominant one he's the he's the one who's there to support her but he's also like like very understanding, very supportive of everything she does. Like it's it's sort of like ideal husband material there. And again, yeah. doesn't doesn't squeal to the feds. Right. And then when asked, are you a homosexual? He just looks at them like no. <laughs> I I bang my wife. Julia <laughs> Child. Did you know that? <laughs> Another thing I do like about it is that it's it's frank about, you know, um, it's real about them, yeah, that. Yeah. About them seemingly having pretty great sex. So their Christmas card in the bathtub, I think. What was that? Was that what that was? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a little too like come to our nudist camp. <laughs> hey, we saw you from across the bar. Come over here. <laughs> I mean, didn't didn't she didn't Julia Child like pose nude? You are correct. I am seeing a nude silhouette of Julia Child taken by Paul. It's it's really pretty. Kayla, <laughs> tasteful boudoir. No, I was too af- I was too afraid to look it up. I'm going to just show you guys. Oh, dear. Look at it. Oh, that's... Oh, that's nice. That's so tasteful. Tasteful. Look, you can just see he loves her. And it's, again, like, it's not one of those forced, like, contrived things. Like, it's just this genuine, natural vision of how he... It almost looks like a candid. Like, she was just getting dressed in the morning. And took a yeah. Yeah. Whereas I feel like if Julie's character were to do that, it would have to be like posed and sculpted, <laughs> perfected and compared to, you know, the 10 other wealthy billionaires in Manhattan at the time. Yeah. Oh, God. Is she on Twitter? I thought that's so insufferable. Yeah. I'm comfortable not knowing about the real Julie. I'm just comfortable knowing about this Julie. Well, and, you know, as the documentary revealed to me, I didn't know this. Julie Child was not a saint. But someone who was adapting to the times, particularly when it came to the subject of homosexuality, which is something I didn't know because she's sort of a gay icon. That, um, and she also, didn't she speak up well ahead of the time for abortion rights? Yeah, she did. So she's got this really mixed liberal legacy. But mm-hmm. she did start, she did do some AIDS and HIV fundraising. She came around. She came around. Mary Lynn Ricecub. Good best friend performance, as she usually does. And I love that scene where Amy Adams going on about her and Eric and their troubles. And then she's like, wait, I'm always talking about myself. What's with you? Oh, I broke up with my boyfriend. Oh, my God. And then brings it back to herself. (laughs) It's also interesting. Like, if you look at Efron's other films, the, the friendships that the characters have are... I don't I don't know how to like they they just seem stronger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I almost they ring wonder, true too. And they go through yeah. like, trials of fire as well. Yeah. So um, I almost wonder with this one, again, with it being her last film, is it kind of her her look back at what her friendships used to be like and the value she thought she took from them versus the ones she developed later in life and and the difference in those. The other thing that I love is you know, when they're looking at the books after uh, the the Turning 30 article comes out in the New York Times or New York Magazine, I forget which it is. And uh, they're looking through the books, which made me think of like, you've got mail and, you know, all those other things. But the friend is like, you only looked fat in your face. I know. <laughs> I'm like. It's like, here's here's the one real friend that Julie has. And she's kind of like in the shadows and just says a few great things here and there. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing I wanted to talk about is Julie's reaction to her newfound fame is really interesting. And I think we see it all the time with people who go viral. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's what happened with hers. It's like this initial case study of virality on the internet. 
And her immediate narcissistic reaction to all of it, particularly when they're like going to bed because she didn't write for the day and she had called into work because her this this bourguignon recipe <laughs> failed. And she's like, my readers are going to be so let down. And but Eric says they will survive. Yeah, they're going to be okay. Like when you finish all this, they're going to be okay. They don't need you. And it's such a wake up call that she does not answer. <laughs> and it's, and it's so interesting. Cause like, you know, you, you kind of see where the self-loathing stems from in the phone call that she has with her mother. Oh, her mom. Mm -hmm. Oh God. And Played by her... Mary Kate Place. Yes. Such a recognizable voice. And then also she left like a comment on the blog, right? So the mom is always reminding her of her failures and how she doesn't add up and won't accomplish anything. She assumes that she's not, isn't just failures. Her mother assumes that she's going to like drop it, that she's going to beat her out. Like yeah. everything else you've ever done. Yeah. Oh God. And okay, it's like, are you still doing that little cute little blog thing you do? <laughs> when it's consuming her life her mom has I, just no sense for what for what it means to her i have to say my mother was beyond supportive and everything right however that exact experience like <gasps> i have a comment or somebody read it or <clears throat> and it's your mom mm -hmm. <laughs> <Damn> it. yeah <laughs> i thought i was gonna get somewhere that person now is Taylor's grandma to me. Yeah, I was just about to say that. My biggest fan. Mm -hmm. Carol. <laughs> Someday, I still hope to try to make not all, but just a few of the recipes in that book. I would but my is I'd have to make them all gluten-free. So oh. put that in a blog. That's mm. not going to work. <laughs> no, right? At least I can still use butter. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> hold on. Is it... Really great podcast material to have me Google things. Gluten-free mastering the art of French cooking. There probably is something. Somebody's done it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely believe I'm it. sure there's a blog. And of course, it's funny. Like anytime I look for a gluten-free recipe of something I love, it has to come with this story of what their life is like <laughs> and and their what they do in life and how hard this was. Which is exactly what this movie is about, right? But it's right. so annoying. You just want to get to the bloody recipe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, it, that would be the interesting sequel, right? Is Julia Child being at the forefront of food television and making that into its own subculture. And then Julie, well, maybe with all this cheating stuff, dealing with, you know, capital oh. T, capital I, the internet. No, I want to see that. I want to see the whole sorted nonsense. Uh -huh. Oh, the with, the, with the, the cheating? Yeah, I want to see all that. I have a note here that I, I want to build on just briefly on something that Kayla mentioned, which is that you can see a lot of Nora in the attitude about sequels. Like, So one thing I was, I knew what the premise of this film going in, and I was wondering how they were going to handle it, about the idea of authenticity and the idea that nothing is new, that people and just end up redoing like because julie in some way embodies that idea that she's not doing she's not writing her own cookbook she's not doing recipes she turned somebody else's work into a project for herself and got fame and money out of it and so then the 
So the film is kind of interesting because it does show, it does present a little bit of skepticism about that, about the idea that Julie's not doing something 100% original. She's not becoming this creative mm-hmm. force the way that Julia was, mm-hmm. which is interesting coming, as Kayla mentioned, about like the idea of remakes because coming from a filmmaker whose two most famous films are essentially remakes of <laughs> earlier classic era rom-coms, is kind of interesting that that she injected a little bit of skepticism about that. But then ultimately, I think the film, obviously the film lands on a place where it doesn't matter. Like there's a different worse film made by a different filmmaker where they insert a fake scene where Julie meets Julia and they have a little bit of reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. Nora took the better option, which is that she said, it doesn't matter what Julia thinks about this project because it's important to Julie and the journey that she's on. And that I think gets to the idea of people finding their own worth. I also want to make a note that the idea of, we mentioned heartburn and the, the way that's kind of dovetails with Nora Ephron's early career in journalism, but like in the scenes, there's lots of scenes of Julia Child sort of negotiating the, her book into life, right? Like dealing with her co-authors, dealing with the publishers, dealing with people, other people who have experience in the publishing industry. And almost all those scenes revolve around Julia trying to get to convey her worth. She wants to be paid what she thinks she's worth. She doesn't want her vision for the book to be compromised. And to me, that rem- like all I can think about that is it feels like Nora talking about her own experiences, working in legacy media, working in daily newspapers and magazines, where like Julia in that cooking school, she was surrounded by men predominantly, mm. right? So there's there does feel like a lot of really interesting, I didn't necessarily go into it expecting a lot of that autobiographical subtext, and there really is a lot of it. There is one remake you failed to mention. Kayla, we have come to Defending Bewitched. Bewitched, yeah. Oh, yes. I, yeah, I, I have remake? a note about that. Is it yeah. a remake or a reconstruction? Well, I don't know. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's just like them. So ha- have you ever seen it? I thought you watched it, Andrew. Yes, I have seen Bewitched. Yeah, yeah, you know, just like them, like, remaking, like, a show. Like, remaking the Bewitched show in the film. Right. But then Samantha is really a... a really Samantha wit. in yeah. the show who wanders into a remake of Bewitched. Yeah. It occurred to me that the that, that Witch yeah. and Shadow of the Vampire would make a great double feature. Because we're in spooky season. It's more about like the mining of intellectual property and nostalgia and like kind of like the like homage like in the film. Yeah, that's a good point. And more explicitly so, because I don't I don't think I think if you pulled 100 people, only only about 10 of them or less would know that You Got Mail is really a remake. Right, but yeah. everybody, but obviously, but which like the 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 idea that it was a famous sitcom is baked uh-huh. into the premise. But it's it's a film that is so critical about reboot culture before it existed. It goes to her prescience. The 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 bewitched remake business. What's happening here with the internet and food culture? What's happening in You've Got Mail with the corporatization of booksellers? Yeah, and the internet. Bewitched walked so that Matrix Resurrections could run. I think it's oh, almost out here. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla and I are staunch defenders. 
bewitched. I think it was very interesting. Bewitched, yeah, forever will be. Honestly, like I totally forgot about bewitched and the con. Like you know, because it's like for me, it's probably like number four. I would say. Actually, I don't know. Some hate mail. I I mean that's fine. I mean like I don't know. I think I'd I'd rather watch. mm, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say that, but I was like, I feel like I I might. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Bewitch just has has like layers to to unpack and like it's so complex and fun and it has Nicole and Sherman McLean. Which it's oh, actually yeah. October, so it is rewatching season. That's what I'm saying. It's spooky that. season. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, everyone has something to do now. As if you didn't have enough. Right. You watched Bewitch. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brie, for picking Julie and Julia. For me, third time's a charm. I I really do. Behind you've got mail. You've got Julie and Julia and then when Harry met Sally. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, but thank you so much for coming on. We hope to have you on again. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Of course. And yeah, everyone can come see you at St. Louis International Film Festival. It's going to start November 3rd. Runs until the 13th. Various venues. Yeah, I, I think there's only like what 32 days left, but I'm not I'm not counting. You're not counting. <laughs> no, oh, none <laughs> of us are counting. No. Nope, All right. Nope, nope. All right. Well, hey, we've actually got another guest. We have the digital editor of East Magazine to talk about the food and Julia Child's legacy. This is Shannon Weber. All right, we've come to the rules of the game. This is not a game, but it definitely rules. I hate myself. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, so we so we have a special another special guest. We have Shannon Weber. She is the digital editor of East Magazine, and um, I'm going to go ahead and plug her Instagram if she's okay with that. Period a periodic table. If you want to look at the most delicious food i'm often mad scroll through your stories because i can't yeah it's hangry that's you get hangry i am hangry at your instagram but yeah so we wanted to invite you on to talk about this food movie it seemed like a great opportunity to to get to chat with you yeah Uh, so thank you for coming so did you see it julie and julia when it came out Yes, I saw it when it came out, and I just watched it again this weekend because I remember liking it, but I didn't remember the flow of the story. And it's yeah. really delightful. It's, I would say, I was a blogger at one point, and that side of it is very, all of the feelings she goes through, is, it's very dead on. Like, that's exactly how that kind of, you ride that wave. So, that I could totally relate to. And it was nice to revisit it because Julia Child is really iconic. And I remember watching her when she was on PBS when I was little. So my earliest memories of TV probably involve her. So it was fun to to see that. I love Meryl Streep in this. So it was it was a good movie, fun movie. Yeah, those are some things that we talked about was our, you know, my initial reaction to it was kind of annoyed with the Julie character and her blogging and all that. Yeah. But then now <laughs> being a film critic on the internet, uh-huh. totally get it. So you were yeah. blogging. Uh, what was your blog? 
I was blogging. It was probably, so I noticed on the movie, she had a blog squat blog. So that's kind of the first generation food blog. I was sort of the second wave of that, which was like a WordPress blog. I started it in 2011. So it was more visual. There was a lot of words, but you had a lot of pictures and it was fun to do. It was more of a community back then than it is now. Now is a different thing. But what she talks about, about, you know, no, not knowing if anyone's listening or reading. And then all of a sudden she's like, hi, on this whole, like, I've got everybody watching and you're beholden to this like crowd that you really don't know. It's that's really a lot of us felt like that. And it was, it's different now, like I said, but it was really, it's a community thing. It was a community thing back then. So you did have people send you things that totally happened. Uh, so how did everyone respond to this film when it came out? It, I think positively, it was because of that, some of us were blogging. So you had that. I think a lot of everybody has good memories of Julia Child. She's well thought of just as a pioneer in the industry and for women. Um, she was the first real cooking show. So hard to deny that she's a pioneer in that way. But for women, especially, she sort of was weird looking and not conventionally attractive so she just really and she kind of messed up all the time on her show and that's not like the Saturday Night Live skit they played I mean that there was merit to that she did not always do everything right so she was imperfect and I think that was part of her draw and the food community reveres her just as a feminist too her husband also was very instrumental in kind of encouraging her and that was pretty well known so she is she was a little she could be a little moody sometimes, and I think people know that, but nobody's perfect. But I mean, I think that people do. There's not a whole lot of people that would say, oh, Julia Child, you know, yeah. The, like, <laughs> yeah, she, it's French cooking is the hardest type of cooking to do. And she really did know exactly what she was doing and was able to transfer her knowledge to an American audience, which is not easy. So for that alone, she should be respected. What do you think difficult about translating it like why is french cooking so difficult uh because we're americans i feel like <laughs> we like easy and i think that we're very used to cooking other cultures in a we're a, not a i don't want to say dumbed down but we're used to having it kind of streamlined for us in french cooking there is no streamlining it's exacting standards and so like you saw the calf's foot to make the aspic, like we don't want to do that. So it's about like French cooking is about time and methods and perfecting things. And we're just as a culture, not as into that as the French are. So for better or for worse. That sounds like for worse. I mean, kind <laughs> of. <laughs> we do have jello instead of calf's feet. So like you get what you will. Yeah. Well, where does that jello come? I don't know. That's right. yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Speaking as the as the vegetarian in the room, yeah, it's all yeah. it's all I the have same. To avoid it, yeah. Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> so, can we talk about the food in the movie? Yes. <sighs> I'm just like I look at this food, and I'm I'm not a foodie or anything, but why does it all look so good? Even like, the stuff that doesn't sound good to me. No. And Nora Ephron is also such a key player in food writing culture. Right. And uh, we talked about this film being autobiographical in, in several ways. But yeah, I want to talk about the food. Like, can you rank the food? <laughs> like, what looks the best? 
What looks awful? What do so, you think about it? Well, obviously, Aspic is going to be zero out of 10 for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's very, it's upsetting almost. Like that's Aspics themselves, there's a reason that people don't do them anymore. And it's not just because of like calves feet. That was actually a really kind of, if you, if you know much about aspects and jello sort of culture of the 60s and 70s, that was actually kind of a diet culture thing for women. So it's mm. kind of an ick factor there. Women were sort of encouraged to eat jello because there was no calories to it. So that was like the ladies' luncheon. French culture, I'm not sure where that comes from. It's weird. So that's a zero. Uh, beef bourguignon or boeuf bourguignon is delicious. It's what you would think of as like a rich beef and wine stew. I mean, it's, you would love it. It's wonderful. It's rich yeah. and big and you sop it up with bread and it's wonderful. So like, that's going to be the best dish I think I saw in there. Even the her failed attempt yeah. at it, I would have put my face in it. Yeah. Was, <laughs> that's the part of the movie. I'm like, did it really not work out? I would probably have still eaten. It looked good. <laughs> <laughs> Just the little sizzled. I don't know how long it had really been in there. So Yeah. I just want to point out that this film was shot by Stephen Colplatt, who is a pretty well, well-renowned cinematographer. But the real experience, I think, that informs this film is that he filmed both of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. <laughs> <laughs> so he knows how to light something. <laughs> he loves a rich dessert. Yeah, he, lo he loves the rich over-the-top dessert. And it's crazy because I, I, I was telling the guys earlier when we were talking about the film at Life with Brie, which is that this is the first time I'd ever seen this film. This is one of my holes in my Nora Ephron filmography knowledge. Um, so I just, so it definitely feels weird coming at it from 2022. It does feel like a time capsule. You mentioned the food blog, like food blogging or just <laughs> blogging, turning a blog into a book, turning into a movie itself feels like a time capsule-y thing now. It is so, because that is exactly, when I was blogging, it's exactly that. Everybody wanted a cookbook. Everybody wanted a regular book. A lot of people got them. It's different now. Even just the way, even just the way the movie's put together feels very time capsule-y too. There are lots of like little pieces of that movie I noticed too that I remember, but it had been a while since I had seen them in a film. So yeah, I felt that too. It does feel like the the last thigh of big Hollywood filmmaking, but about modest things. Yeah. Not that, you know, success giving you existential thread is a modest thing, but I don't think we'll, we would ever get a film like that with those stars at that kind of budget again. Oh, oh no. Yeah. And when this kind of food. So it, as far as like, as, as a portrait of food culture, how do you think it works? I think for the time the two time periods it represents in the flashbacks and in the blogger. I think it's very accurate. I don't know. Obviously I, w I was around for the blogger part, not the Julia Child part, but that what they showed, I think is very good where they kind of showed her as going to cooking school. She was older when she started this career. She was like in her late thirties, I think, uh, which was odd for a woman back then to just start a career at 40. She was the first, I think she was the only woman in her class at Le Cordon Bleu, which accurate. I mean, they showed you that very much that the men were all just like, hmm, what's she doing here? Mm -hmm. uh, that would have been dead on. 
the Paris culture they showed you would have been really accurate too. And I think all that, all that really works together because you sort of saw what both of them were up against at their different time periods in for women in food. Yeah. So that's something about Julia's personality. And again, this is how the film presents it. I don't know what's being sort of what the film is alighting off screen, but it's, I think it's really telling that Julia views it as like, what's the impetus for this? She goes looking for the French cookbook in English and she can't find it. Like that's the origin almost of it. And he says, well, darn it, I'm going to go to school. And she goes to school and she gets this very prestigious French culinary degree. And what is the first thing she starts thinking about? How can I make this? How can I convey this knowledge? How can I transmit this knowledge out of this rarefied world, male dominated world? and move it into a wider audience, which I think speaks a lot about like her character, right? Yeah. Like that we that we know what kind of person is because her first thought was, how can I give this thing that I've paid for and sort of gone through this rigorous training for and give it to the world? How can I give it back and make it more accessible and easier to digest and get it into English? Dang it. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, they refer to her as like, oh, you can teach now. And that's sort of what she did in a way. She taught America how to cook in this way. And that really, that at the time the cookbooks here were bad. I mean, they were just bad. They had it, it was just a bunch of sort of very basic, very bad riffs on international culture. There was just nothing good about it. Definitely no French cooking. That there was just not a lot out there. And so to be able to do that and still run up against so many obstacles trying to do that at the time was very difficult. I mean, that's she, I like the scene where she talks to Irma Rombauer, who's from here, about how hard it was for her to get her cookbook published. It just wasn't an easy road for women in general or anybody to get good information out there at the time. Yeah, my friends and I had a mid-century cooking party once. Oh. <clears throat> I think my favorite thing that I had was a bologna cake. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> just layers of bologna and cream cheese. There's some amazing recipe. I've got vintage cookbooks here and they're stunning. <laughs> I've got, I've got a couple as well. There's, yeah, there's me some too. stuff in there. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. The yeah. sandwich spread, like the things that they made like sandwiches out of even are just like, wow, really? So, <laughs> so just anything and everything. It's just kind of not good. Like what passed as a salad was stunning so yeah i wouldn't it wasn't a great time for food at at all not fresh food for sure for sure the one thing the last thing i want to pick your brain about food movies any other food movies you would recommend to any of us or anyone listening there's so many food adjacent movies i think that i can think and of popo is the one that springs to mind yeah um big night with uh Big Night is one yeah. of my favorites with Stanley. Is it Stanley Tucci that's in that? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I yeah. That was one of my favorites from whatever. I think it was the 90s. Um, yeah, 95, I think. Yeah. yeah. That, was a, that was a really great one. And a lot of people saw it. Like, that was a big hit in the food world. And I remember that. And one thing we didn't mention is that Stanley Tucci is, like, huge in the food world too now yeah i know he got fit well, it was over COVID. he started like doing his videos and everybody was like "Ooh, hot stanley tucci with his cocktail right. yeah yes mm -hmm. yes <laughs> i love uh luca guadagnino's bones and all no <laughs> <laughs> i knew you were gonna say that <laughs> i am love 
is the food movie of his that I, I love because it's about communicating through food. Until uh, the sweat and falls in love with someone through food. Hmm. There's a scene where she essentially has like an orgasm over a plate of food. Oh, that's and right, right. Like as one does. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you would have done that over Buff Bargain Young. Well, there's a couple recommendations for you. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Julie and Julia and everything related to it. We'll have to have you on again, and you'll have to yes. something, food-related or not. That is fine. I would love to be on again. This is great. Before we go, we've got one more thing, something we've been consuming over the past couple of weeks since our last episode. I'll go first. I'm actually recording from Chicago. I came here to see Sai Ming Liang and... Li Kong Shen. So in 2020, Sai was going to do a tour of the United States. He hadn't been in the States for a very long time, if ever. And then, of course, the pandemic really threw a wrench into those plans. But finally, they have decided to start the tour. Their first stop uh, was in Chicago. So around Chicago, there have been several events. Uh, they've screened Days, Goodbye Dragon Inn, uh, Days. It's all like, I think you well, didn't have a near top of whatever year that was. Last year, maybe? Yeah. So that is the director and star of Days. And many films, some we've talked about this on this podcast before, they've come. And on Friday night, I saw two films in the Walker series. That is where Lee plays a monk who is very slowly walking through things. That, that sounds so these, great. Simon Ling, yeah. Yeah, so these are durational films, as they're called. This science that, you know, right at the head of the slow cinema movement. And it has been so revealing to sit in the front row of two different events and watch him be just the most, like, effervescent, smart philosopher who's also very pragmatic about his own work. If you can find it, one of the films is called Journey to the West. And that is taking the uh, Chinese monk character who made this great travel, who's like a folk hero in Chinese culture, and planting him modern France. They're in Marseille, I believe. And the co-star is the great French actor Denis LeBlanc, who is also known for doing some incredible body work. It's not for everyone. It is literally someone walking very slowly, but it has the most, just some of these images, I just can't believe that you would. When the edit happens to another shot, you feel so disruptive because he came out and said, I want these films to put people in a meditative state. And that's exactly what they do. Is so, this film available anywhere right now? Like, can you watch on a movie or is it have a disc? Some of the Walker films are available on movie right now. Are y'all ready for this? Okay. You can rent Ming Liang's uh, Journey to the West on Redbox for two ninety nine. <laughs> All right, go Redbox. Yeah, really, really get that together, Redbox. Um, but yes, you, you've got to be in the right state of mind and prepare yourself. It is just under an hour. 
Uh, but people who watch days on our recommendation should follow up and go journey to the West too. Uh, I am Joshua Ray. Um, you can see me ranking all these signing films on Letterboxd, Instagram, Twitter, at Christy Retinas. Taylor, what's one more thing for you? Um, so I'm still rewatching Southern Charm. Um, if I'm you finally don't keep this bit up. I'm yeah, going to be so upset. I'm going to. Okay. I'm going to. Okay, so I am up to date, or I just finished the season six reunion, and I'm into season seven. But I'm also currently watching the the current season, which is season eight. <laughs> so I'm doing that together. So hopefully, I'm sure by the time the two reunion specials come out, which one will be this Thursday and then the following Thursday. So by then, I'm sure I'll be up to date with everything. Um, so for sure that. And then I have been starting, I mean, since we're in October, I'm watching or I would like to watch some, you know, some spooky Halloween movies for the season. So, so I did Animal Holocaust. Um, I call the devil. No, no, like like Hubie Halloween. Like <laughs> that's what I watched last night. So, all right. So, uh, like, why haven't you stayed up to focus yet? I don't know. Okay. Something wrong with me, I guess. That's your job. Um, yeah. So I guess I will be uh, watching Hocus Pocus. We'll see about Hocus Pocus too. And I guess I'll re or I'll watch The Nightmare Before Christmas. So hopefully by the next time I can report on those. <laughs> three maybe two that'll be your three more things yeah and if you want to hold me accountable you can um find me on letterbox which is just my name and yeah i've been watching the new uh disney plus star wars series andor which oh. um i not that a star wars series needs my uh stamp of approval to get a bajillion people watching it but i do think it represents the sort of thing I've been waiting for since the Disney acquisition of Star Wars that I feel I've been sort of mixed on all the Star Wars stuff that has come out since Disney acquired them. And this is the first. So spoiler alert, Rogue One is up, up, up until now. Rogue One was sort of my favorite of the post Disney things that have come out. By default. Um, uh, no, not by default. I revisited it a couple weeks ago and really, really did appreciate all the things that it's doing. The, the the handful of bad things that I never liked about it are still bad, but it really impressed me all over again. For those who don't know, Andor is a series, prequel series to a prequel. So it's a series about the sort of deuteragonist, deuteragonist, <laughs> of Rogue One, played a rebel named Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna, who having revisited Rogue One, he's absolutely the MVP performer in that film. Um, so it's very it was very wise for them to build a whole show around his character. I don't want to talk too much about plot because it doesn't really matter. Plot is Star Wars plot. But this feels like the Star Wars series that I've sort of been waiting for as an adult for a long time. It is, and I think a lot of that is it is created and a lot of it is written by Tony Gilroy of Michael oh. Clayton fame. Also some writing and directing by his brother, Dan Gilroy of Nightcrawler fame, which I think starts to get at why this series feels so different than anything that Disney has done before with the property. It just I feels it's more like... Nightcrawler than Velvet Buzzsaw. <laughs> it's, it's, I'd say it's more Michael Clayton than anything. 
this just feels, you know, there's an argument to be made that Star Wars is a space opera for children and that it should not, it doesn't either needs to be nor should never be grown up, right? I mean, I think that's a colorable argument. That said, I've been really refreshed. We're sort of four episodes in. It's a relatively long season. I believe it's going to be a 12 episode season. Jonah Gilroy has talked at length about like his development process and how he wrote it. Uh, it's been kind of enlightening. You can seek out those interviews, but it just feels like an adult drama that happens to be set in the Star Wars universe. Like it, nothing about it has the same sort of weightless, here's a bunch of stuff happening feel that some of the other Disney series and films have had. Like it just feels like a drama about people who happen to live in a galaxy far, far away. And it has a certain noir, has a certain noir element, particularly in the first like the three first three episode arc. The you know the series begins with Cassian basically murdering two cops inadvertently and like having to get off the planet and all the things he has to do to get off the planet. It is exactly what I wanted. Hearing about that they were going to make a series about Cassian Andor, which is a series about the kind of deep embedding in the rebellion that we've never really seen before. We've never really seen, like, who are the people who make, who are not freaking Skywalkers and Jedi, who make the rebellion work? Yeah, and, like that and, Battle of Algiers, the Star Wars. It really does. There's, And I will say, like, I've been impressed with how political it is. Like, there's a lot of stuff about the flashback sequences to Andor's use are not subtitled. They are, like, he and the other people who are native to his planet, uh, all the language, the whatever made-up language they're using to represent his people, the Canari on this jungle planet, uh, it's all unsubtitled, so you have to kind of deduce what's going on yourself. The entire third episode plays like somebody has who has seen not only the Battle of Wild Gears, but has seen Bloody Sunday, which is a very weird thing to say, like considering where we are in history with the death of the queen. Like episode three comes off as feeling like a giant critique of British Empire in a very like overt way. Um, so just a fascinating, again, like I, I would say if you're like me and sort of mixed on the post-Disney Star Wars stuff, you definitely give it a look because it is, it feels like the kind of thing I, as like a 40-something Star Wars fan from back old, have been sort of waiting, waiting for Star Wars to sort of catch up to me and become the kind of great adult gripping drama that I've been wanting. So based only on four episodes, it's great. I do highly recommend it. First four episodes streaming right now on Disney Plus comes out every Wednesday. Uh, you can find me at Arachnophiliac on Twitter and at AY76 on Letterboxd. Very cool. You can find us all at cinemastlouis.org at the lens and STL Film Fest on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd Cinema St. Louis on Facebook. All right, so we're on to our final episode in nancy nora kayla what'd you pick the intern we're gonna get to work with the intern you know sometimes working with kayla feels like i'm in the intern because i am an old man and she is a sprightly young anne hathaway type she's shaking her head at me she's so mad at but me. isn't the premise of that movie that robert did was like that she realizes that he, even though he's old oh, he's a really classy guy and Gen a gentleman in ways that men are no longer gentlemen. So that speaks well of you, right? Right. Yeah, we'll find out exactly how true that is. You can find it on all streaming services or rent. And then, uh, yeah. So until then, you better work as an intern.
when you're 65 and tired. Good night. Thank you.